does feel sometimes just as controversial as Christmas. You know how Christmas has got that, like, some people are looking forward to it, and some people are just, like, Grinches? And I feel like New Year's has that similar kind of feel. As, does anyone else see that? You've got the people who are, like, really excited, and like my husband who's dragged me out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning, New Year's Day, to go and climb up the Papamoa Hills. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Anyone online like that? Um, anyone here like that? No. I must say it was all like young families climbing up the hill, the ones who maybe they got their kids like in bed early enough and then just like crashed out. And then their kids were the ones, you guys were the kids, like little kids getting you up at like five in the morning. We're already awake, so we might as well go do, do something. Is that, is that right, Kate? Is it sometimes like that? Yeah, sometimes not. Um, you've also got the people who are really into writing out their goals, bullet journaling, putting their resolutions together, um, and doing all their financial planning, doing their relationship goals, you're going to read your personal development books this year. You, you guys, you know who you are in this room? Your spouses are probably like giving you the, the side nudge. They know who you are. Um, I can't talk because I, I'm this person. I'm very much this person. And case in point, I have this beautiful bullet journal that my flatmate got me for Christmas. I just had to show everybody because it is pretty drool worthy. And it's got like everything, it's got weeks, months, it's got your three month goals, your six month goals, five year plan. Yeah, this is what you want. <laughs> um, so, but the second type of person rolling into the new year uh, is kind of like my husband rolling his eyes in the back row there. Um, and they're the ones who just kind of get up, who just kind of crack back into it. Um, you know, what are goals? You kind of just do stuff. Uh, and you kind of just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the words for this person because I'm obviously not that, work, that per kind of person. But do you guys, you kind of get where I'm going? Is anyone like that? You're like, oh, goals. I'm not going to do resolutions. Psh. Yeah. Nice, Bruce. Nice, Mike. This is why Mike and Carl get on well. Just go and shoot some potatoes sometimes. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's these people that are also in between these two. All right? And I was uh, scrolling through, doing some research online for the sermon, and I came across one of those quizzes, you know, the ones that try and... Um, distract you in the middle of your lunch break, and you know, they're on like BuzzFeed or something like that. What kind of Disney character are you? Uh, so this one was, who are you at a New Year's party? And it was about the different kinds of people at a New Year's party. So you've got the one philosophizing, you've got the one who's trying to fix everything about politics or capitalism and society, and they're giving you these lectures about um, the ways you probably didn't even realise the world was broken and potentially didn't, didn't even want to hear about that at a New Year's party. Has anyone got uh, someone in their head that soapboxes like that? And then you've got the uh, emotional one 
the one who's usually like keeps it all together and is guarded. And, and um, at New Year's, they just get overcome with emotion of everything that's happened that year, whether good or bad. And they, they're just opening up to everybody and saying how much they mean to that person. And they're the ones who's hugging it out or just getting really reflective and introspective. I'm not going to lie, that's probably me when I'm with my people, not just with anyone. Um, and then you've got the one with unstoppable enthusiasm. They're like the Mikes and Carls who are just like, let's just go and make a potato gun and shoot some possums. Like, they just, they keep going and they have ideas and they have passion and energy and they're gonna just make the ideas happen. Um, then you've got the one in this day and age taking selfies. You know, you've got the beautiful platters that the host or hostess brings out and they're the ones taking pictures of that gorgeousness for the, for the gram. Um, and they're obsessed with documenting every moment, all the happy moments that everyone's having. Uh, and then you've got the one reporting on the time I've got a friend with a, a little son who's a bit like this, and they're the ones counting down and letting you know that it's now 8.53 p.m., and you have three hours and seven minutes left of the year. And then you've got the antisocial one, the one sitting in the beanbag in the corner, and the one that the cats find, you know, they, they kind of mooch on over and curl up in the lap. And... You're, you're scrolling on your phone, you're pretending to open, open those apps even though you don't have any notifications. Uh, you kind of want to be there, but you just don't want to engage in small talk with people you don't really know. It's okay to be that person. It's okay to be that person. And this reminded me of another gathering, another party, a long time ago, and it made me think, potentially, who was doing what at that party. So the gathering I'm talking about is this one here. This is the Last Supper. And this is a fairly familiar image, right? We have seen various renderings of it. It's repre representation of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. Have you ever thought about what everybody was doing at that gathering? We've got Jesus there lounging back. They've got some, some wine and some bread and he's chatting, but maybe, maybe Simon the Zealot, maybe he was the one philosophizing. He was the one that all the other disciples were rolling their eyes at as he went on another political tirade about overthrowing the Roman Empire, causing a revolution. And I just imagine Matthew, the tax collector, on the other end of the political spectrum. Maybe he was the one getting hot under the collar at Simon's soapboxing and his philosophical ranting. Maybe Matthew was the one giving Simon the passionate revolutionary the side eye and the, the daggers across the table. Maybe he was drinking a little bit too much wine just to get through the meal even before it just while the snacks were even happening. I imagine that John was perhaps the emotional one. He's the one who's leaning back, reclining closest to Jesus, 
You see him up there on the far right, top, top right in the white. And so maybe he was the one just suddenly becoming overwhelmed at the amazing journey they've been on in the past three years. You know, memories from Jesus' greatest hits are flashing through his mind's eye and turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, taking the time to create a whip and chasing money launderers out of the temple in anger. John's reflecting on Jesus ministering to rich and poor, old and young, Jew and Samaritan, and teaching those who followed him to do the same without prejudice. Serving and loving every person, no matter their race or orientation or ethnicity, and teaching those who followed him to do the same. Jesus' unique way of healing and, and speaking in highly convoluted and complex parables on the ways of the Father, the ways of love. Feeding thousands of people with just a small boy's lunch. Walking on water. Healing and resurrecting the dead. Weeping and grieving. Celebrating together of the goodness and the mercy of the Father, of the divine love that was now a tangible, very real presence in their lives. So imagine, even as John is having this highly emotive, reflective, introspective moment, maybe, maybe there's Peter across the table from him. And maybe he's the one who is using reeds that have fallen down from, from the thatch in the ceiling and he's making a makeshift blowgun and shooting small grapes across the table at Andrew and James when they're not looking. He's the, the fun and exuberant, the one with lots of energy and gets himself in trouble sometimes. And maybe there's Nathaniel who's of noble birth and, and he's the one who's fancy enough to have a second name, Bartholomew. And he's the one maybe being antisocial in the corner. He's rolling the eyes of, at the antics of all these lowborns. He's pretending to listen while he's actually reading a fascinating ancient text on a scroll that he's glad he's stashed in his robes on the way in. The first century equivalent of the Kindle app, the greatest invention. So it's easy to idolize this situation with Jesus, right? And to think of it all lovely and wonderful and just really deep and moving. Yeah, it's a significant moment in this unfolding narrative of Jesus' walk and his ways on earth. A moment where Jesus expands on his ministry and his mission and vision, but more so Jesus takes this time, this Passover meal together, and he points his, Jesus, points his disciples toward the ways of love, toward ways of being together, ways of serving and loving and ministering to one another. And we're going to read out a scripture from John 15 in a moment. And this moment in time where Jesus could have expanded on any, any topic at all, we're going to dig into what does Jesus actually say in this moment to his disciples right before his crucifixion, right before going to the cross? What does he say? 
He could have left his disciples with anything, with a pep talk about encouraging them to do better, to minister to bigger crowds and produce bigger and better miracles. Jesus could have encouraged them to, to meditate and at least start their day right with a quiet time, setting their minds up to be productive throughout the day in order to achieve more and strive to be the best possible individual disciple they could be. You know, new Passover, new you kind of pep talk. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he leaves them with these words. I am a true sprouting vine. This is from John 15, verses 1 to 5, if you want to follow along with us. This is from the Passion Translation. I am a true sprouting vine, and the farmer who tends the vine is my father. He cares for the branches connected to me by lifting and propping up the fruitless branches and pruning every fruitful branch to yield a greater harvest. The words I have spoken over you have already cleansed you. Just checking. So you must remain in life union with me, for I remain in life union with you. For as a branch severed from the vine will not bear fruit, so your life will be fruitless unless you live your life intimately joined to mine. I am the sprouting vine and you're my branches. As you live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you. But when you live separated from me, you are powerless. These are the words that Jesus expounds on and speaks to his disciples in this really pivotal moment. So, so why? Now Jesus doesn't use this analogy of a vine growing, a growing vine, a flourishing vine. He doesn't use it just flippantly off the top of his head. He's using sacred language that draws the disciples' attention back to the way that the people of God were talked about in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament scripture, Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, is talked about in relation to God as a vine. The vine represents God's covenantal people. They're planted and tended by God self so that Israel would bear fruit in keeping with God's ways and his will and his nature and character. We see this in Psalms 80, verses 7 to 9. This is the NRSV translation. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You bought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. So in this passage, the psalmist is using the vine to represent the people of Israel, God's chosen people. It is God who prepared the ground for them to be planted, for them to flourish where he had established them. God's the one who brought them up out of Egypt and rooted them in the land that he gave them. He's the one who built them up to be a people devoted to God in all of their ways. And so often in these Old Testament scriptures, the image of the vine and the vine dresser is used to rebuke the people of God for their unfaithfulness and therefore their unfruitfulness. 
in Isaiah 3, 5, verses 3 to 5. The prophet speaks plainly to Israel, saying, And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So God's saying, hey, judge between me and my people. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Which can't be used, the usefulness is nil. And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. This is God speaking to his people. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled down. So that's a great optimistic scripture, isn't it? The people of God have walked away from his ways, refusing to allow him to tend to them. And as a result, God's throwing in the towel, walking away. He's dissatisfied with the unfruitfulness and unproductive vines that are his people. So that's not ideal. You don't really want to be on the receiving end of that, do you? So in the Old Testament imagery, The people of God are individual vines in God's vineyard. God's tending to them for their fruitfulness. But as we go back to Jesus, to this passage, these words from John 15, from the Last Supper, Jesus starts to speak about the vine to his disciples. And then they'd be nodding along, yep, we know the imagery We, God's people, are individual vines in God's vineyard. But then hold up. These first words out of Jesus' head are, I am a true sprouting vine. I am the true vine. This would have rung alarm bells in the disciples' heads. Like, hold up. We've heard this imagery, but did Jesus just really use those words, I am? Because... That is incredibly controversial for Jewish teaching about God. I am in scripture is only used for Yahweh, for Jehovah, the God who met Moses at the burning bush and pronounced, I am that who I am. So with one simple phrase, I am the true vine, Jesus is claiming divinity. He's claiming that he is as one with God. Jesus is revealing his true identity on this night, this, this last supper, this pivotal moment. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am divine. I am God. So Jesus takes this imagery that his disciples have heard for years in the synagogue, and he shakes it up by claiming that I am God. I am the true vine. Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And that's just mind-blowing to them. Another fascinating thing in this little tiny statement is Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. That in itself also blows the disciples' minds because they have this picture of themselves as the people of God being individual vines in the vineyard, in God's vineyard. But Jesus is saying that he is the true vine. He is the the vine that we are grafted into. We are no longer individual vines within God's kingdom, but we are the branches 
grafted into the rootstock that is Jesus. So Jesus is the vine, and we get linked in and connected into him. We're no longer disconnected individual vines in God's vineyard. We're actually connected and linked in through the common denominator of Jesus. So I've heard, you Tupukiites will know this, that kiwi fruit vines in a healthy vineyard, they're actually linked together and connect underground. Their very root system. Is that, is that correct? Get the tick of approval? Sarah, who's, who's working with kiwi fruits? Just, just say I'm right. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So the kiwi fruit vines, they link together, they interconnect underground in a healthy orchard. They develop a cohesive unity that causes the flourishing of the wider whole. This is a picture of us as the church. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches, the canopy. This is us. As Jesus followers, we are interlinked. We are not disconnected. Christ is our grounding and our roots and our connector. Now, this passage about being connected to Christ, resting in him, remaining in him, something that jumped out at me in this passage is the fact that if we as growing disciples of Christ are these branches, if we're the canopy, that means that we absolutely cannot live without Christ, right? If a big storm comes through, like the cyclone that's due tomorrow, and it knocks off some of these branches in the canopy, and they're just barely hanging on by a thread, if they fall off, they're going to wither and die. If a branch disconnects, that branch cannot bear fruit because it's not connected to the vine. Okay? And in the past, I've read this passage with the context of what's happening here. And I've come out of it focused on the fruit-bearing aspect of this, focused on outward behavior, that I must produce fruit in my life to show that I'm connected to Christ. And I think when you've been in church a while, like it's quite easy to slip into that mindset. Especially at this time of year when it's the whole new year, new you, resolutions, goals, do better. This time of year it feels like more so than any other time of year that society is focused on your worth, your productivity. How are you going to achieve in your career life? and your physical fitness and health goals, and your relationships and your personal development and self-help. It's all about doing and achieving and ticking off those little boxes on your to-do list. Leaning into that concept of new year, new me, create resolutions and goals. This is the year that I achieve and I get that promotion that I'm gonna be appreciated for my worth at work. And I'll push through and maybe this year will be the year that you will use that gym membership or spend time on you. I will, I will, I will. And these New Year's resolutions can take over. And our intention for outward behaviour change can drown out God's intention for us. Jesus' only intention for us is written out in these words, some of his final words before his crucifixion, and that is, 
He's laying out who he is. I am. I am God. And he's laying out who he calls us to be in response to this. He calls us to rest, to remain in him, to join with Jesus, to relate with him. Some translations use the word abide, to abide in Jesus, the true vine. So Jesus' intention for us this year is that we remain connected to him. And author Gary Burge touches on this in his commentary on John. He says, fruit bearing is not a test. That is, a branch does not have to demonstrate a level of productivity to be safe for destruction, from destruction. Rather, fruit bearing is a byproduct. Apart from me, you can do nothing. To be connected to the vine means that the life of Jesus is flowing through us, and this leads to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is the inevitable outcome of an interior spiritual life with Jesus. And this for me was a complete mindset flip from how I used to read the passage. When I was thinking about fruitfulness being something that protected me from God's shaking his finger at me, saying, you're not doing good enough, do better, it's actually the opposite way around. A dynamic interior life with Jesus and connection to him comes first. And if we're looking at fruitfulness first, then we're actually missing the whole point. So the message paraphrase of verse four says this, live in me, in Jesus. Make your home in me, in Jesus, just as I, Jesus, do in you. So Jesus' intention for this year, number one, is that we remain connected to him. And so I wonder if this is key for our culture of busyness, of doing more, striving to be faithful and to produce fruit. We might be producing fruit on the outside, but are we connected to Jesus at an interior level? Are we a branch precariously hanging off by the hanging on by a bare sliver to that vine? if we're knocked about by the wind or storms in life, are we connected in Jesus? Are we connected to him enough to remain in him? Or are we stubbornly focused on our productivity, on doing more, when our focus really should be number one on reconnecting to the vine, to Jesus himself? So this is a series that we're starting today and we're gonna spend the next two weeks Digging into this passage, this remain in me passage in John 15, and the verses that follow on from where we left off today. And we're going to focus on if this is the foundation of our life in Christ, our life as believers, as the church connected together, interlinked, what does that mean for our ordinary lives? Because it's great, we could hear a message like this and yeah, it's all about connection to Jesus, but what does that practically mean? What does it mean to have God in our lives, our ordinary everyday lives? What does that actually mean? I think of our ordinary lives as the, 
the waking up, you know, your alarm goes off, you either jump out of bed or maybe you push snooze three or four times. Where is Jesus in the middle of our ordinary lives when we're getting the kids ready for kindy or school or making lunch, forgetting to hang out the washing, running errands, mowing the lawn, having awkward dinners with the in-laws or old friends? What does it mean to remain connected to Jesus in the middle of these everyday normal moments? The moments of stress and chaos and when you lose your shirt, surely I ironed that last night. Surely if faith is as important to us as we confess or believe, then there must be a way of intersecting our everyday lives with faith in a really practical, meaningful way. So we're going to reflect on some of those practical things we might do to connect with Jesus over these next couple of weeks. So as we finished, I have one final story to share with you. Just hold on a second, I'll... I'll try not to make it a long story, but it is probably longer than you want to be standing behind me. So our household suffered from quite a major controversy this summer, I must admit. And the rest of our household members, Carl, my husband, and my flatmate, um, may not agree with me here, but that's okay. See, I quite enjoy household plants. Anyone else? Yes, these are orchids. Yep. Um, but apparently there's quite, there's a thing. You can actually have too many indoor plants, apparently. I didn't know that, see, yes, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. You can never have too many plants. Apparently you can. So during spring, I was really happy. My basil was going nuts, so I potted that all up. There was like five little basil plants. I have a coleus, which is this gigantic thing. Uh, And I was told that actually it enjoys bright sunlight. So as soon as I put it into the bright sunlight, it's literally like the size of this drum. It's huge now. And apparently it's not great to have that sitting right by the TV because it kind of like creeps over when like the cricket's on the TV. I think it looks pretty cool. So... I was really excited. I had these plants flourishing under my care. I had four orchids doing really well. Um, But apparently we had to come to some heavy-duty compromise. So there was a... I think we came to the the conclusion that five plants in the house was was the the limit. Yeah, thank you, Kim. Yes. How rude. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do have a very small house and a very small lounge. Um, so that's all right. I found some, some uh, places to send my basil. Um, I sent some of my coleus away to my mother-in-law, took cuttings and kind of tried to contain the spread. But there was a bit of a, of a loss in this process. So I did have four gorgeous orchids who were all flowering. Now I only have three. I know, I know. Um, And over summer, I found out that actually some of my care of my orchids was basically just neglect. And that I hadn't, you know, if I wanted to do this right, I needed to actually, you know, research, figure out what I needed to do to get these uh, babies thriving, okay? 
So I found a new, a new way of raising orchids. So this is for you, Kim, you might appreciate this. Although it is very labor intensive, I will warn you. So these guys now are being raised with like a water-only process. So they get five days with like about an inch of water in the bottom of these uh, glass canisters. So there's no soil or anything in there. Five days where they're hydrating, soaking up all the water from their roots. And then you tip out the water and they go dry for two, two days. So it's a process of hydration and, and dehydration. But you also have to remember to A, check them for any mealy bugs, because they're what killed my other one. And you have to spray them down with alcohol if there's any mealy bugs on there. And you also have to use this mist spray stuff that you spray all over their roots and their leaves and everything like that. So it's quite a process, it's very time consuming, right? But I have seen some progress. We've got a little shiny new leaf and we've got some new ear roots and it's very exciting, very exciting. Um, but it's tedious and it's all consuming sometimes. Nothing happens overnight, it's a process. Week one was great because it was new and exciting, but then having to do this week after week and to remember what day am I going to tip the water out and put new water in and spray them. But actually, nurturing our connection with Jesus is like the process of nurturing an orchid. It's time-consuming. It's a process. Some days it might feel like you're on a mountaintop. You've had a, a great meal together after church, after listening to an awesome sermon and you're, you've had a really refreshing prayer time with your, your, either yourself or with friends. But most days it's ordinary and it's monotonous, sometimes even boring. And the process of nurturing our connection with Jesus isn't driven by, or shouldn't be driven by tick box mentality. It's not like plugging in your phone to charge it overnight and then forgetting about the charger throughout the day. It's more like this process of nurturing, of taking the time to remain aware of Jesus in our everyday life. So this might be different for each one of, one of you. So I invite you to, to let that simmer in your mind. And band, if you want to come up while I finish up. Let that simmer in your mind. What, if it's Jesus' intention for us this year that we remain connected to him, what does that look like for us? How might he be stirring your heart to connect and reconnect with him again? And one way that came to mind for me, a simple, everyday, ordinary practice that I wanted to share with you. It's a simple act we all do every day, and it's something that's as necessary to our bodies as breathing. And that's the process of drinking, taking a drink from a nice big cup of water. So we all know that hydration is good, is needed, it's necessary. And we all know the you know, age-old recommendation, your mum always says, drink more water, nourish your body. And what if this week, in this act of physical nourishment, of drinking water, we use that as a moment to be mindful of our connection with Jesus. You get up in the morning, you, 
you go to the fridge or the tap, you get a, a drink of water, and as you drink, think about how are you going to nourish that connection with Jesus today, just like you're going to nourish your body. Remember Jesus. Remember the vine and our connection to the vine, to Jesus. As you drink in the morning or even throughout the day, let that be a reminder for us to connect to the vine. To remember that our fruitfulness isn't us striving, but actually our connection to the vine, to Jesus, comes first. And as we practice that this week and nurture our connection to the vine, that's, that's Jesus' intention for us this year. It's not to do some big things. That comes from the connection. But that doesn't, doesn't come first. So I'm going to pray for us and these guys will lead us in a song. So Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you for reminding us that your intention for us this year is to remain connected to you. Would you be stirring in our hearts? Would you be showing us the ways that you want to connect to us individually, but also connect collectively as a church? May we use simple, ordinary practices this week, a practice such as drinking water, to remind us to check in, to check our connection with you, to be connected to your vine. And Jesus, we love you and we want to put aside the things that get in the way, the clutter, even resolutions and goals. Would you be stirring in our hearts, calling us to rest in you, calling us to abide in your presence.